clock here says 9.30, so let's begin. Good morning and welcome back to Sunday School. It's a long time no see, but very good to be with you all. My mic is on, right? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, good to be with you all. Good to be good to be coming back to study God's Word with you. We're setting out once again on a survey study of the Bible using the Answers Bible Curriculum from Answers in Genesis. Just to remind you what this is all about. This is a chronological study, meaning that we're going to be moving generally uh, following the order of events in the Bible rather than the books themselves, but we're going to make our way through the Bible. Many times that order is going to be the same. We're going to be following the books, but it's designed to follow the chronology. Now, today we're going to start with some important introductory information. All right, no, I should say this. Our curriculum is going to start with some important introductory information about the Bible, God, and the gospel. And once we get through that, then we'll actually start and proceed through Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, you, as you know, every level of Sunday school is going to be going through these, the, the same lessons, though at different levels of depth. So... You're a parent and you have children in the lower levels of Sunday school. Take advantage of this fact and talk about what they learned and what you are learning together because you're in the same parts of Scripture. You're going to be talking about the same things, though you'll have a chance to be more knowledgeable. Now, what specifically can you expect or look forward to in this course? I said some things about this in my recent email, but I want to just highlight those things for you again. And in case you didn't see the email, highlight, that for them, highlight them for you for the first time. If you've never been through the Answers Bible curriculum with us before, well, you're going to see a number of things. You'll see, first of all, how the people and the events of the Bible fit together into God's unfolding plan of redemption. You'll also be equipped to answer many of the challenging questions that face Christians today. You'll also learn and see modeled how to properly interpret the Bible. And you'll also discover the timeless relevance of Scripture and be challenged to apply it to your life today. Now, if you have been with us in the Answers Bible Curriculum before, and I know some of you have, or at least partly, there's still much to look forward to here. First of all, you're going to be experiencing an improved version of the Answers Bible Curriculum. Uh, this time we're using the second edition of ABC. The content has been refined. Some of the lessons have been rearranged, combined, Change and also a number of new lessons added, and we'll talk about that. I'll talk about that a little bit more later on. You also benefit from an improved teacher. I've learned much since my first run through with this curriculum, both from my study at seminary and also from just studying the curriculum to teach it. So I trust that I will teach it better this second time around. So if you're joining us for the first time, then you're fortunate because you get the new and improved version of Dave. You also have uh, any Lessons that you missed filled in, along with some extra lessons. But even aside from all these reasons, if you are a veteran, it is important that you're part of this second run-through with the curriculum because, well, you need to be reminded of things that you learned and perhaps have already forgotten. Honestly, I don't remember everything that I learned through our study together, and I'm the teacher. So how much more so you? And you know, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 12-13, you and I need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We need to have our minds constantly renewed in God's truth, refreshed, washed in God's truth. So it's good for you to be with us again. 
But not only that, you need to learn this material, you need to learn the Bible better so that you can put it into practice and so that you can teach this or you can teach God's truth to others. Ultimately, what we're doing here, what you can look forward to in this course is knowing the Bible better and by extension and Lord willing, knowing and enjoying your God more. So as I said in my email, none of us ever graduate from studying the Bible or learning the Bible. So that's why I'm excited to search the scriptures with you once again and proceed through this curriculum. Now, the structure of the curriculum is going to be a little different this time than it was the first time around, as you already heard me allude. Rather than the dividing the lesson into three years of four quarters of 13 lessons per quarter, this time the teaching is divided into 20 units of 10 lessons each. Now, this is going to result in a difference in the terms of number of lessons. If my calculations are correct, and sometimes I get into trouble when I try and do math during Sunday school, but while we went through a total of 156 lessons with Answers Bible Curriculum 1, we're going to go through 200 lessons with Answers Bible Curriculum 2. So that's 44 more lessons. It means we're going to be looking at some things we didn't get to look at before. I wonder what new sections we'll get to look into. Just from my brief glance through the, uh, the total number of lessons, there certainly are some more lessons in the New Testament, but also it looks like uh, a number of uh, more lessons in the Old Testament as well, filling in different parts that we weren't able to get to. So I'm looking forward to discovering those new things with you too. Now, Answers Bible Cookham 2 is designed to run all year and to be completed in four years. But our practice at Calvary is to take the summers off um, it, from the Answers Bible curriculum. So if we do that again, it's going to take us a little bit longer than four years. But long or short, I do believe and trust that this will be a blessing to you. And how do I, how do I know that? How do I know it's going to be a blessing to you? Well, partly because of what we're going to be discussing today. Before I get to that, you can see on your screen the lessons for our first unit, Unit 1. In this first 10 lessons, we're going to be focusing on, as I, as I said earlier, we're going to be focusing on the Bible um, be focusing on God and be focusing on the gospel. This is important um, bedrock. This is an important groundwork for what is to come. You may notice that our unit ends with a review. All the units end with a review. And you know that I like to do some special things on the review days in the adult Sunday school class. Sometimes we do a review game. Sometimes we look at a topic that we otherwise wouldn't be able to cover, like a topic related to the section of the Bible we're in, or even a topic of something I'm learning about in seminary. Sometimes we do a Bible question and answer, so we may do any of those things. But whatever we do, I trust those review days will also be something that you can look forward to. But enough about introductory information. What are we actually going to study today? And you can see the title of today's lesson is, God's Word is Our Foundation. And this is a key concept that we must understand from the beginning of our study. The Bible, because it is God's word, must be the ultimate standard that we use to judge every thought, every feeling, every word, and every action. Here's our specific agenda for class today. We're going to start by talking generally about truth authorities in our world. Then we're going to look at three passages from the Bible, and which three passages that show us that God's word must be our authority. And then we'll finish today by exploring a little bit more of what this means for our lives today, life in the real world.
So let's ask God now to bless this time and make effective our study. Pray with me, please. Our great God in heaven, I pray that as we launch into another study of your scriptures, that you would bless it, that you would enable me to teach this well, that you would prepare the hearts of the people to hear your word and to put it into practice. God, your word is delightful, and it is it is such an enlightenment for us, as we're going to see today. But Lord, sometimes it has to do hard work in our hearts. So I pray that your spirit would accomplish the necessary work, that we'd be humble, that we would be submissive to your word, and thereby we would gain the benefit of your way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, to start, I want, to, I want you to participate with me in a little brainstorming session. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd like you to submit answers to my question by raising your hands. Now I'll call on you. What is it that people today use as authorities for truth? That is, what do people use as the final judge for whether something is true or false, right or wrong? Give me one. You can raise your hand and give me, give me an answer. I'll give you one just to maybe prime the pump. One authority that people use are feelings, feelings and desires. For example, I just feel that I'm meant to be with this person. That's how I know it's right. That's one example. What's another one? Nobody, no volunteers, no, no ideas? Uh, yes, over on the side. Yeah, whatever the celebrity says. Uh, a, a particularly qualified person, maybe it's the Pope, maybe it's a government official, maybe it's uh, a certain person you admire like a celebrity. Yes, that's right. What else is used as an authority? Uh, Dwayne. Yeah, mom or dad, that would be maybe another qualified person. Roy. Can you say that again? Astrology? Is that what you said? Okay, yeah. Uh, what did the stars say? Um, Quasi-religious uh, authority. Uh, Dwayne, something else? Yeah, scientists. What, what do various scientists say? Or what does the scientific community say? Very good. We could point to a number of other authorities. Uh, pleasure. If you enjoy it, it must be right personal experience. Uh, I, I know that this is true because it happened to me, or I, I went through an experience. What does society at large say? Or what does my community say? Uh, what does tradition say? This is the way we've always done it, so it must be right. And we already mentioned certain qualified people, feelings and desires, science and philosophy, a man's reason, religious texts. All of these are appealed to as authority or seen as the ultimate authority for what is true or what is right. And I believe all of us as Christians would affirm that, uh, by the way, this is not necessarily an exhaustive list. We could point to other things. Now, we as Christians would affirm that there is only one truth source that is completely reliable and authoritative, and that's the Bible. That's God's word. Wouldn't we say that? Hopefully. But as we say this, as we say, yes, the Bible is our authority, it's the ultimate judge of what is right and what is true. Do we actually believe that? 
And do we actually live like that? Because what happens when what the Bible says contradicts one of these other authorities that we've mentioned? What happens when your desires contradict the Bible? Which are you going to believe? Or what happens when your experience contradicts the Bible? Which one will get reinterpreted? Will your experience be reinterpreted by the Bible? Or will the Bible be reinterpreted by your experience? Or when today's scientific consensus contradicts the Bible, who's going to win in the end? Do we say, as Christians, that we believe the Bible is the ultimate authority, but functionally, in real life, is something else our ultimate authority? Is something else the ultimate judge of what is right or true? And are we consistent to turning to the Bible as our authority? Well, in today's lessons, we're going to see why the Bible and the Bible alone must be our ultimate authority. God's word must be our foundation. This is a truth that's seen in many, many scriptures in the Bible. But we're going to look how this concept is presented in three different psalms. Actually, three sections of the psalms. The first one that I want you to look at together with me is Psalm 86, 11. Please open your Bible to Psalm 86, 11. And many of you probably know that the Psalms, these prayer songs, these prayer poems of Israel, these hymns, oftentimes they speak about the scriptures in the Psalms, the quality of the scriptures, how man should respond to God's word. And Psalm 86 well, in general, it's not about the scriptures specifically. It's actually a, a prayer of pleading to God by David, who's in need of deliverance. There's an important verse in the middle of the psalm that says something about God's word, and we want to look at that. Psalm 86.11, take a look at that verse with me. It says, Psalm 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that is, O Yahweh. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now observe some, observe some details of this verse with me. Notice here that David, King David, is speaking to God. Right before this verse, David has been talking about the goodness and the greatness of God. And right after this verse, David says that he will give public thanks and praise to God if God will rescue David. And, but notice the two requests that make up verse 11. David first says, teach me your way. Now, when someone in the Old Testament refers to God's way in the singular, it usually is a reference to the right way that God gives his people to live. That's the way of God. You are to walk in the way of God, God's way. Contrast this when we speak of the ways of God, plural, that usually refers to God's actions, God's wondrous works. So when David says, teach me your way, he's asking Yahweh to show him how to live, how to walk. That's one request. Another request is, unite my heart to fear your name. The term unite here means literally to bind or to join together. And the idea is that David wants to wholeheartedly fear and reverence God's name. And by extension, fear and reverence God himself. David does not want any part of himself held back from worshiping and living for God. But how is God going to answer these two prayers? Teach me your way, unite my heart, fear your name. Is God going to send down a holy lightning bolt from the sky? Now you know my way and you'll fear me with all your heart. 
No, that's not how God's going to do it. But how? By the scriptures in which David learns about God and learns God's way. Notice the middle line of this verse. David says, I will walk in your truth. Now, walk's a metaphor here, a very common metaphor used throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. Walk is just another way of describing how a person lives his life, how he acts, how he behaves. David says, if you will teach me your ways, O God, from your scriptures, then I will live according to your truth. And where is God's truth revealed? Indeed, it is the scriptures. So let's put this all together with the context. David's in danger. He's asking God for help and deliverance. He's reminding God of God's glorious character. And then this concern is expressed by David to God. Oh God, David says, in the midst of all this, I don't just need your provision of deliverance. I need to know how to live, how to act, how to think, what to do, what to believe. And God, I know I will get this from your truth. So please, teach it to me. Help me to live by it wholeheartedly. Oh God, if you'll please do me this kindness, I will praise you before people. And I will walk according to what your word says. What a perspective. And David, because he wrote this psalm, he saw it as a model for people, the people of Israel to follow. And not just them, but us too. So what about you? You look at this verse. Is your heart like David's? As your perspective, as you go through life, its decisions, its troubles, God, teach me your way. I need to see your truth. I need to know it. Show me how to walk. Let me not have a divided heart before you. Or do you abandon or ignore God as you go through your life? Do you not pay attention to his truth? David shows that this is folly. And this is evil. We see the same truth illustrated in another way in a different psalm. Second verse or section of scripture I want us to look at is Psalm 119. Please turn over to Psalm 119. We're going to look at verse 105. As you probably know, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm of all the psalms in the Bible. Also could be called the longest chapter in the Bible, though technically the psalms are not chapters. But do we know what Psalm 119 is all about? Well, really, it's the greatness and necessity of God's word. This huge psalm is all about God's scriptures, the Bible. You know that one verse? It may be famous to some of you. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law. That comes from Psalm 119. And another famous verse is the one we're going to be looking at, verse 105. So Psalm 119, verse 105. I'll turn there in my Bible. Notice what it says. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, we have another metaphor here. And this is one of those metaphors that we've heard a lot and sung a lot. The danger of the well-known things, as you've heard me say below before in Sunday school classes, the danger of well-known verses or metaphors in scripture is that we stop paying attention to them. And we stop thinking about what they actually teach. So, Let's re-examine this metaphor with fresh eyes. Here, psalmist says that God's word, what we can call the Bible, is compared to a lamp or a light. And you know when you need a lamp, when it's dark. Lamps light things up when there's 
no other light source or when there's not enough light from other sources. What does God's word light up for the psalmist? He says it lights up his way, his path, the, the, uh, the way for his feet. Now, again, we're not talking about a literal path here. This is just like what Psalm 86 says. The psalmist is talking about when he describes the way for his feet, he's talking about the way he should live his life. He says the word, God's word, lights this up. And this, this should make sense to us, right? Life, if we're honest, is dark. And not just because evil is present or because tragic events happen in life. Life is really uncertain without the word of God. I think of that line from Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach. Matthew Arnold was writing this poem in the mid-1800s, and he was lamenting the loss of religious faith and indeed Christian faith in the world, people trying to live without God. And in one of the lines, or one of, one of the sections of the poem, he says this, what's the result of abandoning God's word? And we are as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, as ignorant armies clash by night. He put his finger on the real issue. In this dark world, how can you know what's true? How do you know how you ought to live? How do you know who is your real enemy? How do you know who is your real friend? Life gives you many answers, but they are conflicting and confused. And sometimes there's no answer at all. You might think you've happened upon a few certainties in life, but then all of a sudden those things crumble away. You thought certain items were scientific fact, cannot be challenged, and all of a sudden they're revised. You thought certain people were your devoted friends, and all of a sudden they abandon you. Or you thought a certain person was just a powerful witness and servant of Christ, and next thing you know he's living in heinous sin and he's abandoned the faith. Well, all of this and much more, how can we possibly successfully navigate life and all the competing claims of what is true? Well, the psalmist tells us, the answer is God's word. God has provided us with supernatural light in this dark world. And by walking according to this light, with God's word as our authority, we'll be able to see clearly. We will not stumble in the darkness. We will not fall into a pit. We will know the way to live. We will know the way that is according to truth, to wisdom, and to joy. God has given us this truth. What a gift. Praise God for his enlightening word. But the question is, do you walk according to God's light? Are you using God's lamp? Is it constantly lighting the way for your feet? Or do you hardly use God's lantern? And just trust your own instincts, trust your own wisdom, trust the wisdom of the world. If so, how are you going to deal with this text? How will you possibly avoid stumbling and injury of yourself? My friends, my brothers and sisters, we must look at all of life and the world with the lamp of Scripture. Only by doing such will we see things as they truly are. 
And this lamp is no selective light. It's not like you shine it on certain things and it works. You shine it on other things, it doesn't work. No, wherever God's word shines light, it illumines. Whether it's history, whether it's science, whether it's your salvation, or whether it's your day-to-day life, it's God's lamp. It will light the way. You may remember the analogy that Ken Ham, the president of Answers in Genesis, likes to use for describing how we view life in the world. He says it's like putting on glasses. You see, everyone is wearing glasses, so to speak, to help them see the world and make sense of it. That is, everyone's interpreting what they learn and experience in life by some authority. And this system of life interpretation is what we call a worldview. Everyone has a worldview, and it's like wearing glasses. Now, unless you're wearing biblical glasses, your glasses are opaque. That is, you can't see through them. Or you have improperly curved lenses so that everything you see is distorted. You might be able to discern basic things with such lenses from time to time, but you'll often misidentify what you see and probably frequently injure yourself. Because you just can't see properly. Even the best of other glasses, other worldviews, is going to fail us. But God, just as this verse in Psalm 119 says, God mercifully has given us real glasses, clear glasses, perfect glasses, that allow us to see and walk in the world with clarity. If we put on and keep on these biblical glasses, biblical worldview, a perspective that understands the Bible to be the ultimate authority and tester of truth, then we will be blessed. We will be wise. It will be like we're walking in light and we can see properly the way forward. When such is the case, my brothers and sisters, why do we then sometimes take off God's glasses and put on the glasses of man's opinion and experience? I know God's word says this, we say, but most medical professionals say this. Or I know God's word says this, but all my friends say this. Or I know God's word says this, but my feelings tell me otherwise. There's no reason for this kind of thinking. It will only injure us. So we've seen from these two verses, Psalm 85, 11, we see that we need God's word in order to walk in God's way. And Psalm 119, 105 shows us that we need God's word to see our world and our way clearly. But there's one other psalm I want to look at briefly with you, and that's Psalm 19. Turn over to Psalm 19, and we'll look at verses 7 to 11. This is another relatively famous psalm in the Bible. This one's also written by David. And there's a clear progression in this psalm. can't remember if this is something we'll come back to in a further lesson, but Psalm 19 divides neatly into three sections. In verses 1 to 6, David talks about how God reveals his glory through creation. In verses 7 to 11, David talks about how God reveals himself through his word. And in verses 12 to 14, David confesses his inability to meet the standard that God has revealed in his word and how he needs God's mercy. Now we're going to look at this middle section. We're not going to pay attention to the entire psalm, but we're going to look at the middle section of Psalm 19 where David says some things about God's word. Look at verses 7 to 11 with me in Psalm 19. David says, The law of the Lord, that is the law of Yahweh, is perfect. 
restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. All right, it's a little bit longer than the other two we looked at, but observe some details of this passage with me. Notice that, first of all, we have a number of different nouns used to describe God's word. It's called the law of Yahweh. That is God's Torah, God's instruction for mankind. It's also called the testimony of Yahweh. It's his witness to man. It's called the precepts of Yahweh. It's his rule book for life. It's called the commandment of Yahweh. It's his authoritative directive. It's called the fear of Yahweh. It's the word that brings proper reverence. And it's called the judgments of Yahweh. It's his weighty decisions and authoritative verdicts. Now, if such synonyms are used for scripture, does any other authority dare assert itself as the Bible's equal? Notice further the adjectives that appear in this passage describing God's word. It's called perfect, complete, and without error. It's called sure, reliable, and faithful. It's called right, literally straight. It's correct and just. It's called pure. No evil or mistake pollutes this word. It's called clean. It's holy and of the highest quality. And it's called true. It's constant. It's trustworthy. Again, consider the quality of the word that God has given you. Surely its nature proves that no other authority is worthy as your ultimate interpreter, as your foundation for life. But then notice further what David says God's word does. And again, we have six descriptions. It restores the soul, David says. It revitalizes your inner person. It makes wise the simple. Even naive simpletons can become wise men through this word. It rejoices the heart. It moves a man's inner being to joy. It enlightens the eyes. It illumines your vision so that you can see life and the world correctly. That's just like what Psalm 119 said. It endures forever. It's a permanent word and always relevant. It doesn't change with the times, but it informs and, and instructs in every time. And it is righteous altogether. All of it, every part of this word is righteous and just. Now, consider all of this, my friends. What a word. What an undeserved blessing that we have this from God. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that the things that this passage talks about can be true for you? Don't you want your soul revitalized? Don't you want to become wise? Don't you want joy and all the other things mentioned here? If you do, then listen to this word. Submit to it. Make God's word your foundation for truth. Don't suffer these other supposed authorities to challenge God's word. 
and don't abandon God's word for what sounds like wisdom from another source. You have something incomparable, something truly great. It cannot be matched in the Bible. This is the very word of God. Is it any wonder that David comes to conclusions that he does in verses 10 to 11? He says, this word is more valuable than gold, than much fine gold. Doesn't matter how much gold you have, doesn't matter the quality of that gold, this is more valuable. He also says it's more refreshing and enjoyable than the sweetest of desserts. And back then that was usually honey, but I imagine we could come up with many modern equivalents. Whatever you think is the most delightful thing to eat, David says this is way more enjoyable. This is way more refreshing and nourishing. And he says, moreover, this word warns the servants of God against evil and foolish ways. And it declares reward to those who will keep what is written within it and know the God who is revealed through it. Again, I say, what a word and what a God who makes such a word available to us. Now, David appropriately understood the preciousness of God's word. But again, the question is, do you? How do you view God's word? Is it just one source of truth among many? Do you think you can take or leave God's counsel in the scripture? Do you see no problem in neglecting or ignoring what God has written to you? Do you find it easy to reinterpret what the Bible says if some other authority counsels you differently? Again, if you find yourself answering yes to those questions, I urge you, don't be so foolish. Or you're going to miss out on this word And you're going to keep stumbling in darkness. Listen to King David. Listen to God who speaks through David. Listen to God's word and subject yourself totally to it. You know, there's another way to describe basically what we've been talking about today. We can talk about these ideas in terms of worldviews. We can talk about these ideas in terms of putting on glasses. But we can also talk about these ideas in terms of faith. In what will you place your ultimate faith? Will it be in your experiences? Will you trust man's theories and conclusions ultimately? Will you trust your own feelings? Or will you believe God through the word that he's written to you? My brothers and sisters, if we are shaky when it comes to believing God's word and trusting in it as our ultimate authority, then, we, then when we are pressured by the world or when we are pressured by our own flesh or when we are pressured by the evil one to ignore or abandon God's word and put our faith in something else, we will. And we'll suffer the consequences that come with that. I don't want you to injure yourselves in that way. And I don't want you to injure the church in that way. Before we go any further in our steady of God, or the Bible, or the gospel, this is a matter which we need to have settled. What is our ultimate authority? What is going to be the final word in every matter when one source of truth claims one thing and the Bible claims another thing? Our answer must be emphatic. We go with God. We go with the scriptures. We stand on the Bible.
This is not merely due to the quality of the Bible, as we've seen described in the passages today. This ultimately has to do with the source of the Bible. This comes from God. God is the ultimate authority. So because the Bible is God's word, the Bible must also be logically the ultimate authority for us. Now, in all this, understand, I'm not saying that all other authorities are useless, that experience, feelings, science, friends, they're never helpful in life. No, that's not true. They can be, and they are. They need to have a proper foundation, but they are useful. And I must qualify that I'm not speaking about apparent contradictions between other authorities and the Bible. Sometimes people say things conflict with the Bible when they, when they don't actually. We'll talk a little bit more about some of those specifics later on. But hear me in this. Where there are true conflicts, true contradictions between the Bible and what some other source says, we must stand firmly on the Scripture. We would be wise if we would be blessed, if we would be happy, if we would do what's right before God. We must do this. This will require us of letting go of our fear of man. Because this will not be a popular stance. You stand on God's word as ultimate authority, you're not going to be well-respected in the world. This will also require humility. If you're going to stand on God's word, you cannot exalt yourself or your own ideas or your own desires. This is going to cost you. But what does God's word say? James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will what? He will exalt you. God's word is indeed our foundation. And I hope you can all say amen to that. Now we've heard the main application from our lesson and from the scriptures today. God's word is our foundation. But let's consider a few more application questions as we consider God's word and how it impacts the real world. I have a couple of questions for you. Number one, again, I'm going to want some participation, some feedback on these questions. What are some areas in which Christians are under pressure today to let go of the authority of the Bible and acquiesce to or accommodate another authority? I'll give you one just to stimulate, the, stimulate your thinking. One area where we are under pressure as Christians is the area of marriage and sexuality. We are constantly pressured to accept transgenderism, and homosexuality as normal or even honorable behavior. That's what our society tells us. And not only that, society tells us that immorality is totally normal. It's totally normal for every person to look at pornography. I mean, they can't help themselves. That's just human. And it's normal for Christians to do too. What's the big deal? Or when it comes to marriage itself, it's not some sacred institution. It's been devised by man. It was originally constructed to help with legal contracts and issues of inheritance. It's no big deal. You can dissolve your marriage through divorce if you find that it's not working out the way you wanted. No big deal. And besides, marriage is just really a burden anyways. You get married, it's like taking on a ball and chain. You heard these things? This is part of the pressure. This is part of the pressure that's exerted on us and on our thinking from other authorities. The question is, how are we going to respond? These things contradict what God's word says. But are we going to accommodate them? Or are we going to reject them? What are some other areas in which Christians are being put under pressure by other authorities? Yes, Rob. 
I heard the first part of what you said. Can you say the second part again? That's right. Yeah, abortion is a big one. Uh, this is always from our society and from various authorities in our culture. It's considered a, a, a right of all females. They have the right to choose. How dare you tell me what I can do with my body? Uh, look at you trying to oppress women by denying their right to abortion. That's one of the pressures that we experience also. What's another one? Dwayne. I'm sorry, can you say that again uh, more loudly? For some reason, you're really quiet. Yeah, absolutely. This is a big one. When it comes to origins, Christians are, again, under pressure. As you said, Dwayne, the, the school system, the education system just assumes and teaches the Big Bang, the evolution, uh, evolutionary theory, an old earth. And then Christians are said, if you're going you're gonna to be taken seriously, you've got to accommodate this. You've got to reinterpret the scripture to fit this. And some people say, well, we're not reinterpreting the scripture. The scripture always allowed for this. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later on why that's not the case. This is a, a clear area where Christians are faced with a choice. Are we going to stand on the authority of God's word or are we going to buckle and go with another authority? Because who can who can challenge the scientific community? Clearly, they are the ones who know what's true and what's right. So we just we got to re, reinterpret origins. That's another area of pressure. How are we going to respond to that? We could point to many others, I think. It's a constant barrage from our culture in terms of the authority of Scripture. When it comes to parenting, that's another area where we're under assault. Children are looked upon as a burden, not a blessing. Oh, why would you want to have kids? Um, discipline, according to the Bible, is looked down upon by our society. Corporal punishment is considered outdated, cruel. That's just child abuse. Some people even teach that you should just affirm children and everything they want. I was actually reading a book from one of my seminary classes written by a Christian psychologist. And he was not talking about children specifically, but he was talking about in, in marriage, it's totally wrong to tell your spouse that he or she is doing something wrong, even if they are. Because if you do tell them that, you'll be, um, you'll be taking away what is the most important thing in their lives, which is their, their feeling of significance and security. That's ultimately what salvation is about. It's God giving you significance, God giving you security. And when you say something that reproves another person, you're taking away from that feeling of significance, and you're going to make them fearful, and that's what's going to make them act out in bad ways. So really what you should just do is just affirm them in everything, show them, show them your love, and affirm them as a significant person. And I think people think the same way about children. And this is, again, this is a pressure on our thinking. What's going to be our authority? And when it comes to evangelism, we're under pressure. Don't say what is offensive. That's just going to drive people away. I know by experience, people respond much more positively when you just speak about the love of God. 
Or, no, they're never going to believe you if you just use the Bible. You need to come at them with another, um, another avenue. You need, to, you need to engage them where they are. You need to argue according to what they believe. We are, again, experiencing these messages. How are we going to respond? Is that what the Bible says? Or psychology in general, I already alluded to this. Increasingly, all aberrant behavior is being re-diagnosed as a disease, as a disorder, as something medical. These are not spiritual issues. This is just a medical issue. And the solution is, let's just medicate this person. Again, there is a place for medicine. But when psychology or other supposed fields of medicine, and I'm not saying everything in psychology is bad, But when psychology says things that contradict the Bible, how are we going to respond? Miracles of the Bible, historicity of the Bible, you can't believe that. Archaeologists just proved that a long time ago. Postmodernism, how can you push your truth on someone else? Everyone has their own truth. Universalism, everyone's going to find God in the end. How could you be so unloving to tell people that they're not going to be with God? Church government. Why not use a business model? It's what works. Pastor's a CEO. The elders are, no, they're not elders, board of directors. And treat the people of the congregation as, um, I forget the exact term, but like constituents, investors. Feminism is a pressure on Christianity today and a pressure on the church. Why are you denying women the right to be pastors? Why are you denying women the right to be elders? We're equal in Christ. And society has clearly progressed to show the equality of men and women. Why are you denying that in the church? You're bigoted. You're outdated. How are we going to respond to this? Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but they're just some of the things that I thought of. We are are being challenged in many, many ways when it comes to the authority of Scripture. And so we may say, oh, yeah, the Bible is the authority. But then we're faced with these questions. We're faced with these challenges. What really is going to be our ultimate authority? Are we going to stand in the scripture or are we going to accommodate these other authorities that people use? So that's just to stimulate your thinking a little bit there. Let's progress to another question. Number two. Oh, I should say, just to reaffirm, I think we've seen today that we can stand with confidence on the scripture. We don't have to say, well, you know, they're saying all these different things, but I don't really know. I guess I'll go with the Bible. No, you can be confident. This is God's word. This is God's truth. This is God's wisdom. This is what's going to light up your way. You're going to have to work to make sure you properly interpret it. And you're going to have to count the cost of believing it and putting it into practice. But you'll be rewarded if you do. That will be pleasing to God. That will be wisdom according to God's way. So you don't have to fear following the scriptures or standing on the scriptures. Second question, though. If the Bible is as amazing as we've described today, why do people reject the Bible as the ultimate authority? I ask you. Yes, uh, Don, it is, right? I'm sorry, can you say that again uh, a little bit more loudly? Yeah, I think that's a, a central part of it. It's not that the Bible fails in some respect. It's just that there are reasons that people don't want to accept it. As you say, they fear man. They want the approval of man. And I think we could add to that that they they love the sin that they do. 
It's just like what John says in his gospel. The light was made manifest, but the darkness did not love the light because the light exposed evil deeds. Ultimately, the reason the Bible is rejected is not because the, uh, the Bible is rejected as the ultimate authority. It's not some deficiency in the Bible. It's because of the sinfulness of man's heart. Yes, ignorance is mixed up in that. Some, sometimes people have just never heard or read the Bible, or they've never had it explained in its context. But ultimately, it's an issue of what man loves in the heart. And this is true of all of us, right? Before Christ, this is what we all did. This is why we all rejected the word of God. And we all rejected God himself. It's because we loved our sin. This is a result of the fall. And this is why we're so thankful for God's mercy in opening our eyes. Well, people will give various excuses as to why they don't believe the Bible. It's outdated. It's just full of myths. It's the work of men. It's mistranslated. It's inaccurate. It's full of contradictions. And to those specific objections, there are specific answers. We'll talk about more of those answers as we move through our Sunday school curriculum, but Ultimately, it's an issue of what the heart loves. Man needs a new heart. And until he gets that heart, he's not going to recognize the Bible as the ultimate authority. That leads to our third question. How would you attempt to help a person, especially an unbeliever, to see that the Bible is the ultimate authority? How can you help him see that? Now, we might be inclined to answer this question by saying, well, let me just prove it with another authority. I'll go to science, or I'll go to archaeology, or I'll go to philosophy, I'll go to logic. I'll prove that the Bible must be true. Well, if you do so, you're essentially dooming your own argument. Because if the Bible needs another authority to prove it, then the Bible, logically, is not the ultimate authority. If it is the ultimate authority, which it is, then the only way to prove the Bible would be to point to the Bible, would it not? And this is actually what the Bible calls us to do. What are we to do as Christians in terms of making God known in the world? It is to preach the word. It's actually to herald the gospel, announce God's truth, explain it. Present God's word. God has so ordained that the means of converting a person is, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, is through the foolishness of preaching, the foolishness of what was preached, not through clever arguments. Moreover, and this explains partly of how this works, God says that the scripture is his revelation. It's how he reveals himself. And when God works by his Holy Spirit in a person's heart to save a person, God opens his eyes to recognize the divine word for what it is. He sees God on display in the scriptures. He doesn't have to say, oh, you need to prove God to me. No, he just sees him. The scripture displays him. And when God opens his eyes, he can't help but recognize them. This is God's ordained means of awakening people to the authority of scripture. It is through preaching the gospel. It is by declaring the word. And this is why we're called to do that, everywhere and with all people. Now, this is not to say that we can't use other arguments to counter superficial objections to the Bible. There is a place for arguments based off of archaeology, logic, and the like. But ultimately, we must understand it's the gospel that saves people. And we don't ever want to make an argument that somehow makes the Bible not the ultimate authority. 
It's like Paul says, let God be found true and every man a liar. This word God has shown us is true. He's made that clear to us. So we are to treat it even as we speak with other people as the ultimate authority. Somebody once said, and I forget who it was, but it's, it's something that applies to multiple situations in the church. Whatever you use to win people is ultimately what you win them to. This is true for attracting people to church. You attract people with a carnival, you won them to carnivals. This is true also for trying to teach people about the Bible. If you have to use science or rationality to win people to the Bible, you've actually won them to rationality, not the Bible. If you use the Bible to win people to the Bible, then you've you've honored the word as it actually is, the ultimate authority. I believe that's, as God reveals in Scripture, that's his ordained means of changing people, of saving people. Now, those are the questions I would want, I wanted you to think about, but we have a little bit of time left. What other questions do you have based on what we've talked about today? No questions? Okay, if you think of another question or something that you'd like to let me know based on today's lesson, you can always email me and Probably many of you have my email. It's the one that I send the Sunday School Preview messages out to you. That's davkaposha at gmail.com. So Dav, D-A-V, the first three letters of my first name. Kaposha, my last name, C-A-P-O-C-C-I-A, at gmail.com. You can let me know if you have a question, if you have one now, or if you think of one later, or something you'd like to tell me based on Sunday School, or even just about your Christian life. I'd, I'd love to hear about it and love to help you with it if I can. Well, that's all that we have for this week. This is, I think, an an important foundation and an important start to our study through the scriptures and our study of God. Next week, we're going to move more directly to the study of God, and we're going to talk about the attributes of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, this is a, a wondrous and liberating truth that you've given us your sure scriptures to light the way of our lives. You've shown us how to understand the world and how to understand our own way of living. It's through your word. God, in in this world that is very confusing, very uncertain, and Lord, as as you know, this postmodern mindset, people don't even know what's true or how to figure out what's true. But we have the answer. We have the way to, to clear the fog, to banish the darkness, and that is with the light of your word. Thank you for giving that, giving us this word. Thank you for being so kind to us. Thank you for not leaving us in darkness. We did not deserve this. We did not deserve your salvation in general. But along as a part of your salvation, you have revealed it in your word. And you've given us wisdom, your wisdom. Oh God, I pray that we would actually walk according to this wisdom. I pray, God, that as we are under pressure, and there are many pressures, things that seem wise, things that seem kind, seem things that seem like they are right and just, but when we line them up against your word, they conflict with what you say. Oh God, I pray that you give us the faith and the courage to stand up against those things. Knowing, God, that your word will not fail. Or think of that other word of your scriptures, oh Lord, where you say, that every word of yours is tested and that you are a shield to those who walk uprightly. Nothing of what you say fails. You have proven that throughout history. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for that because that gives us confidence. 
that we can stand on your word. Oh Lord, grant us the faith. Holy Spirit, grant us the sanctification that is necessary and that goes along with this, that we might obtain the benefit of walking according to your word. I pray that you do that for the people of Calvary and anyone listening today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everyone. I'll see you next week. You're welcome.